This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. Chip Connolly, hospitality entrepreneur and best-selling author, initially made a name for himself when he created Joie de Vivre Hospitality, the highly successful collection of boutique hotels in the U.S. Later, he served as Airbnb's head of global hospitality and strategy, and over the years, discovered a knack for mentoring and teaching. In fact, Chip earned the nickname Modern Elder, and yes, he was twice the age of the average employee at Airbnb. But as you will hear, one of the founders of Airbnb explained the term as meaning someone who is as curious as he is wise. And Chip is certainly wise. He shared his wisdom widely in many best-selling books on leadership, wisdom, and happiness. But his latest endeavor and what he sees as his greatest legacy is a midlife wisdom school called Modern Elder Academy, or MEA. Because we've all been there when uncertainty or doubt starts to cloud our path and make us feel stuck, either personally or professionally or both. And we need perspective and a way forward. And that's exactly where the MEA's experience comes in. With an experiential curriculum and lots of brilliant visiting teachers, as well as his two co-founders, Jeff Hamui and Christine Sperber, MEA was established in January 2018 in Baja, California, Mexico. The school and its staff is committed to reshaping how individuals view the aging process. The academy gives its students the tools to navigate midlife with a renewed sense of self, and it now has over 4,000 alumni from 40 countries and 26 regional chapters. MEA's newest and next venture is set to open early in 2024 the first ever midlife wisdom school in the U.S., which will be located in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on a 2,600-acre regenerative horse ranch. And this January, Chip will be releasing his seventh book, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. Indigari is extremely excited to be partnering with Chip and Modern Elder Academy to launch one of our Indigari journeys or small group trips. The retreat will take place in November 2024 at MEA's private beachside enclave in Baja. Through dynamic daily workshops and a curriculum designed by CHIP, those on the trip will learn how to refocus priorities, face fears, and identify personal strengths and skills. The group will also have the opportunity to take part in activities from hiking, yoga, surfing, and swimming with wildlife at Espiritu Santo. I and those who sign up will be joining a transformative global movement dedicated to lifelong learning and reshaping an authentic narrative for the life that they seek. I couldn't be more excited. For more information on this trip and to sign up, visit Indigari.com. I'm thrilled to welcome Chip here with me today to talk about all of the projects he has on the horizon, as well as to uncover the misconceptions surrounding aging and to discuss the ways which he and MEA empower individuals to reach their full potential. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley will continue. Listen to new episodes Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132.
Experience life without borders. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere. Here's your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley. Welcome to Passport to Everywhere. I'm Melissa Biggs Bradley. Today I'm speaking with Chip Conley, founder of the world's first midlife wisdom school, Modern Elder Academy. Listen as we uncover the misconceptions of aging and ways you can step into your next chapter feeling your best self. Hi, Chip. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I want to start at the beginning. When I we first met, you were still running Joie de Vivre. Yep. And I would love to start with sort of what inspired you to launch that, because in many ways, obviously, that's the beginning of your hospitality yep. career and sort of evolution. And what do you think made it so successful? Well, let's start by saying I was 25 years old when I came up with the idea for Joie de Vivre. Um, and it was based upon what I was seeing from Bill Kimpton in San Francisco and Ian Schrager in New York. They were really the first two American boutique hoteliers who, who got the movement off the ground. But what I was noticing as a 25-year-old, uh, they were both a good bit older than me, um, was that th most of their focus was on a higher-end property. Um, not something that my friends could afford. And I just, they were also uh, tended to, in, in Ian's case, tended to focus on very hipster kind of flavor. And in Bill's case, very corporate. And I just felt like, could you create a boutique hotel company that has all of the personalities of the world? Um, and what if each hotel had its own personality? And so Joie de Vivre came out of that. Joie de Vivre meaning joy of life. The mission statement of the company that being, how do we help people create joy of life? Each of our 52 boutique hotels over the next 24 years, all of them in California, was dedicated to a particular magazine or sometimes a hybrid of two, because what we liked about magazines as an organizing principle for creating boutique hotels is that magazines are very lifestyle oriented and niche oriented. And a boutique hotel can be lifestyle oriented and niche oriented. And I, Ian Schrager once said to me, Chip, that the statement that defines boutique hotels is, I am where I sleep not I am what, what I eat. And I think that was that was true. And in Ian's case, his perspective was, okay, I am where I sleep. And the five adjectives that would define an Ian Schrager hotel were pretty much the same, no matter which hotel it was. My perspective was quite different than that, which is like each one of the hotels should be its own brand, should be its own, have its own personality. And you may love Joie de Vivre because there's a diversity of different flavors. Um, or you may be confused by Schwabe because there's a diversity of flavors, from low end, you know, motels that have been completely redone to you know luxury hotels. So, I appreciated that for 24 years, from age 26 to age 50, I was the CEO of that company and founded and grew up from one one person to 3,500 people. You know, I love that what you were just saying about your concept and the difference with Ian's because in some ways when I think about travel the idea of I am where where I sleep and it's always the same is that I want to be the same <laughs> wherever I go in the world right and what you're talking about is I actually want to be different every time I'm in a different hotel in a different place in the world I want to try on a, a different version of myself in some ways we have so many different reasons we travel I mean First of all, it's assuming that you have one personality and that you don't have multiple personalities. And it's assuming that you have one reason for travel and you don't have multiple reasons for traveling. So there's times when you're traveling and it's business and you want to be efficient and you want it to be something, you want something that's going to be, you know, 
performance driven. And then there's other times when you want to be eclectic and artsy and, and you want to be, feel like a local um, and then there's, and, and the connoisseur of food and drink. And, and then there's other times when you want to be just totally romantic and over the top. So um, I'm proud that in the two dozen years I ran that company, we, <laughs> we were pretty much pioneers in creating boutique hotels in the suburbs, boutique motels. We had a boutique campground and we had boutique hotels at every price point. So I think we were the most diverse boutique hotel company that existed. I, I, I pretty much can say that. But at the same time, it was like not easy as a brand because every one of the hotels had its own name. Unlike both Kimpton and Schrager, we never replicated. We never did. We had the Hotel Vitali in San Francisco. We could have replicated that over and over again. I'm having dinner there tonight. That was a hugely successful hotel. But I was like, you know what? We only do one. Pablo Picasso didn't like go and create, you know, uh, the same painting over and over again. And obviously I'm not Pablo Picasso, but I am of the mindset that having originals makes them soulful and interesting. And the moment you take the Delano or the Mondrian or the Palomar or the Monaco, and you try to actually stamp them out over and over again, you have now become Marriott or Hilton. Yeah. <laughs> so why did you do this in the first place? Yeah. But there is something there was some really deep principles that ran through everything. And, you know, mm -hmm. based on your experience with Joie you wrote one of my favorite business books of all time, which was Peak. Yeah. How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, which I just think is a Bible for running certainly a hospitality service business. You, you have to love your employees first and treat them in the best possible way. And the rest, only the rest will follow. I mean, I love that. So will you talk a little bit about that, sort of how that philosophy came about, how you learned that and what you think is so important for leaders to bear in mind when they're running successful hospitality businesses? Sure. So I went to Stanford undergrad and I went to Stanford Business School and it was a couple of years out of Stanford Business School after getting my MBA that I started uh, Joie de Vivre. So you could look at me and say like, oh, he's just a Stanford MBA starting a boutique hotel company because it's a good business opportunity. But I'm also a writer and a bit of a philosopher and a psychologist. And in some ways, um, over the course of my first dozen years of running Joie de Vivre, I, I never wrote a, I didn't write my first book until about a dozen years into it. But I was chronicling things. I was sort of, I had my psychology side of me. It was like Maslow. Maslow is very interesting. Maslow hierarchy needs, there's an employee hierarchy needs. There's a customer one. There's maybe, maybe even an investor one. And so I took psychology and philosophy and, and also my writing. And I really said like, well, I, I don't know. I'm, what if I were to use my company as a laboratory for learning about leadership and about branding and about running a business in a conscious capitalist kind of way, way before that term existed. In fact, I, I was on the cover of Stanford Magazine for alumni, and they said I was a karmic capitalist. <laughs> what goes around comes around. So um, I started writing about it, and I started speaking about it first, and then I was asked to write books, and Peak came out of that. That was my third book, and it came out of that process of, of me looking at the business and asking myself, gosh, the most neglected fact in business is that we're all human, uh, but humanity doesn't show up on a balance sheet, you know? Uh, and so how do you make sense and build a business strategy around the idea of helping people live up to their potential or have a self-actualizing experience to use a, an Abraham Maslow term? 
So yeah, I've I've written my my books have had Maslow, Victor Frankl from Man's Search for Meaning, Eric Erickson. You know, my books are sort of at the intersection of psychology and business. And um, I have a PhD in psychology, not because I have I took one psychology class in college, but I, you know I have an honorary degree because like one of the most famous psychology schools in the world, graduate schools, PhD schools, like had me give a commencement address and said, "Here, here's your PhD." It's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> but I, I think more than anything, I just I, I like understanding people and hospitality in its best form is really learning to understand people. Absolutely. So you took all of what you knew from joie de vivre, from writing your books, from your business degrees. And I, I love that you got the Insta psychology degree or PhD. <laughs> and you were asked to take that to Airbnb and yeah. help those founders develop a culture. I mean, they develop a culture already, but to really scale that business. Can you talk a little bit? And you did yeah. that for a number of years. Yeah. But what what were some of the strategies that you brought into that? And what were some of the lessons you learned from that experience? So yeah, the chronology is that after in my late forties, after I'd been running Shawati a long time, we hit the great recession and we had hit the dot-com bust in 9-11 a few years earlier. And I was like, I'm worn out. <laughs> um, I loved it until I didn't. And I just didn't want to run that company anymore. So I, I had a flatline experience based upon an allergic reaction to an antibiotic, which when you die and go to the other side, it does bring up existential questions in your life about, is this what I want to be doing with my life? And ultimately, I sold Joie de Vivre to John Pritzker, whose family started Hyatt. And now Joie de Vivre is called JDV, and it's a Hyatt brand. But I didn't know what was next. I was 50 years old. I'd gone through sort of a weird time in my late 40s feeling like, wow, this midlife crisis thing sucks. <laughs> um, I now call it the midlife chrysalis, not the crisis. And I have a <laughs> TED talk coming out on that, coming out uh, any, uh, in the next month or so. Um, I was asked a couple of years after I, I sold Joie de Vivre by Brian Chesky, who was one of the co-founders and CEO, and he was the CEO of Airbnb if he could come over to my house and explain to me why he wanted me to help him democratize hospitality. Those were his exact words. And I said, Airbnb, I've heard a little bit about it. I don't know too much about it. This is like 11 years ago. Uh, I don't know much about it. Are you owned by couch surfing? And I totally, I completely upset him. And so he came over and we spent four hours uh, in my backyard cottage talking. And I just was really taken by his insatiable desire to learn. Now, a lot of, you know, he's 30, he was 31, I was 52 at the time. And, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs have sort of a reputation, tech entrepreneurs, which is like, ah, uh, a lot of hubris, no humility. What I found from Brian was he's got the hubris for sure, but he also had the humility to act, to know that there's a lot of things he didn't know. So what he would do is seek out the person in the world that he felt most understood that. And so he sought me out from the perspective of hospitality and travel. Within a month, he said to me, you know what I've found is you have hospitality and travel background, but you are my in-house mentor. You are my modern elder. I didn't like that a whole lot. Uh, um, <laughs> I, You are my modern elder. And he said, a modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. And I said, okay, if that's what a modern elder is, I will be your modern elder. But he said, you're my modern elder for understanding people and leadership and emotional intelligence and um, creating a culture. So over the course of four years of full-time and then three and a half years part-time taking us up to the IPO, 
I was the gray hair in the company, so as they say. Um, and I was the person who, I, I wore a lot of hats. Actually, my title was head of global hospitality and strategy. So I was in charge of all the hosts around the world and our strategy and our business development and a bunch of things. But I think the number one thing I was in charge of was to make sure that Brian, who was a, you know, a Rhode Island School of Design um, student who'd never started a business before, he'd really never had a job before, that his little business could grow into, you know, something that he thought could democratize hospitality. And I was very proud seven and a half years after having started that when Airbnb had it, did its IPO, it became the most valuable hospitality company in the world. And it had a lot of my fingerprints on it and still does. And, you know, Brian and I are still very close. Hey, he's a public company CEO, been running the company now for three years, and he's he still has his job. He is the only creative slash designer CEO in the Fortune 500. So he's a, he's very much an unusual breed for a CEO, but he's also like my son. Mm. Um and I, I, you know, I really appreciate the fact that he's a great student. And I was too. I learned as much from him as he did from me. And what would you say were kind of the greatest lessons that you each taught each other, if you could? Well, I called it the EQ for DQ trade alliance. I, the EQ was Brian didn't have a lot of EQ. He's, he was an empathetic person as both of his parents were social workers. But, he, you know, he was sort of a weird and a little bit of an awkward dude. Um, he was a bodybuilder. He played hockey. He was a, just a little off. And um, so I think what I helped him to see is like emotional intelligence is the most important quality of a successful leader. And how do we develop that emotional intelligence in you, Brian? And how do you do that for your leadership team? And how do we do that as a company? So that was the EQ side. The DQ side I learned from him was digital intelligence because I, at age 52, joining the company, I'd never worked in a tech company before. And here I was in charge of strategy for a tech company. <laughs> I can barely make my iPhone work. And so I learned a lot about venture capital, about product, you know, how do you create a website and make it compelling? I learned a whole lot about the millennial Silicon Valley world. I was a boomer amongst millennials. And um, so we learned a lot from each other. I was what I call a mentor, a mentor and an intern at the same time. And I had to embrace that because if I had come in with the perspective that I'm the old guy who knows it all, then they would have rejected me, first of all. Number two is I would have been unsuccessful because I didn't know it all. I needed to learn as much as I was teaching. And so that process in my 50s of being just a rapid learner while also dispensing wisdom was incredibly, I don't know, it was... It gave, it gave me a sense of being alive and because I really felt like I had taken a lifetime of career and leadership and understanding hospitality and was applying it on such a bigger scale because my company was bricks and mortar and it was only in California and it was smaller hotels generally. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm you know dealing with a company that's in 192 countries that has 4 million hosts around the world none of whom are our employees. And how do I create a means for those hosts to actually take my belief, which is that hospitality is a noble profession because we make we help people to feel good. And how do you help people to learn that when they're not your employees? So that was a fascinating design dilemma. It was like, okay, the people delivering the hospitality experience are not our employees. I'm not used to that. <laughs> 
but I used psychology. I went back to psychology and I said, okay, what is the carrot and stick motivational system that is going to help these hosts to be, to live up to their potential when they're good and to actually understand that there's a stick coming when they're not good. And um, I think that that was one of the key things. I think some of the things I was responsible for is like building a brand globally, taking our culture and making it work globally. But most importantly, taking Airbnb, which when I joined was a place where generally millennials on a budget in 20 major cities, that's where they were staying. It was not mainstream. And how do we take Airbnb and make it mainstream? And that was part of my job as well. And was the key to being able to do that and take that culture and as you said, sort of that that incentive for the host to deliver an experience to lots of different kinds of people. Did you do that through psychology? I mean, ultimately they weren't employees. So so what was your secret? It was high high tech and high touch. So the high touch part of it was to understand what are the motivations of these people. I really wanted to understand why did someone become an Airbnb host? So I, I went on a listening tour about two, three months after I joined Airbnb. I traveled for about three months to 16 countries. And in each of those countries had one or sometimes multiple meetings and speeches and, and frankly, trainings with the local hosts. And I learned so much. And I, I what I came to realize is like, you know, one of our competitive advantages at Airbnb, I thought of it as a disadvantage because they're not our employees. One of our advantages is that they're entrepreneurs. These people are doing it for two primary reasons. One is they want to make money. And that's sometimes not first, that's sometimes second. And number two is they usually deeply believe in the product, whether it's the community that they're in or the neighborhood or their home. And, and so they feel a certain pride around that. Um, so how do you help people who are entrepreneurs realize that if you do the following things, you're going to be more successful and you're also going to create memories that are going to last a lifetime for people. So there was that part, you know, and and then it was literally actually giving them chips, six top tips, and here's how you execute on those. And then educational videos for them to watch and then host opportunities for hosts teaching other hosts these things. But the other piece was, was the high tech piece. And that's not something we had in the, uh, in the boutique hotel business. Generally speaking, if you stay in a hotel and the hotel sends you an online survey afterwards, only about four to five percent of guests actually fill it out. Now, what was different about Airbnb is that it was a reciprocal review system where hosts and guests were reviewing each other. And instead of only four to five percent, it was 70 percent. And so we had a lot more data. We were able to take that data and then be able to evaluate trend lines for a particular host in terms of the welcoming experience, how comfortable the bed was, you know, whether they were able, gave good instructions of things to do in the neighborhood. And so we, using data, using first the high touch piece of understanding motivations, and then the high tech piece of like, how do we give them instructions to be better at what they do based upon the data we're getting? Because 70% review rate means we have a lot more data than a boutique hotel company with four to five percent. And when that you're getting that four to five percent, it's sort of hard to know who do you talk to unless they say, you know, unless as a guest, I say, it was Joe at the front front desk who made me feel so good. But most, you know, having read a lot of hotel surveys, that's not what happens a lot. So you don't really know 
who was in the case of an Airbnb host, the person, <laughs> it's the host. And so the, so there was a singularity of focus to know this isn't working. It's your, your responsibility. You're the entrepreneur. Here's the tools to do it, uh, to get better. And let's create a super host program so that actually, if you're doing it really well, we will actually show you as a super host, you get a bunch of extra benefits with that. You get, and man, did it take off. I'm really proud. It was really, and I haven't really talked about this a whole lot. Um, I wrote, I wrote about it in my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. But, you know, a lot of people who interview me are not coming from the hospitality or travel background. So to be able to sort of say that it was this combination of high touch and high tech that ultimately led to Airbnb going from having uh, a guest satisfaction that was half of what it was in the hotel industry when I started. And by the time I, I finished, it was 50% higher than the hotel industry, which is shocking. The only way that Airbnb was going to succeed and grow as fast as it has is if the quality of the product on average, again, everybody can have their worst or their best experience on Airbnb, just like they could at Joie de Vivre. You'll have a very average experience at Holiday Inn. You will not have your best or worst experience of your life. So boutique hotels and Airbnb have a greater standard deviation of experiences. So the question is, how do we elevate those, those positive experiences and learn from them and help our hosts learn from them? And then how do you bring the hosts together to learn from each other? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And again, as a student of psychology, it must have been so interesting to see how the, that combination of high tech and high touch could actually have a very impactful outcome. And I know, you know, in, in thinking about all of this service, hospitality, and business, happiness is important to you. And you've done TED Talks on mm -hmm. measuring what makes life worthwhile. You've thought a lot about gross national happiness, our wonderful Bhutanese metric. And I'm fascinated as to, and this is going to get us to the Modern Elder Academy, but as you thought about happiness, why do you think it is so underappreciated as a metric, even a, a, an intention in our modern society? Well, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, it, interestingly enough, the Declaration of Independence talks about the yeah. pursuit of happiness. Um, so it, the idea that happiness is at the core of at least Americans, American cultures and even politics is is fascinating. And yet, even the word pursuit, the pursuit of happiness, you know, the language for pursuit in some dictionaries says to chase with hostility. <laughs> so there's a there's a sense that we get on a treadmill and that happiness is this thing that's outside of our grasp. It's the thing you'll you'll feel once you get that and and that new shiny object. And whether that's a new job or a new girlfriend or boyfriend or a compliment from your boss. So there's a pursuit to happiness that actually it means that. People are people are aspiring to it, but often once they actually get it, it doesn't mean as much to them. And this is what's called the hedonic treadmill in psychology. And you actually don't value the thing you've gotten. Now you want to go get the next thing. And so I think that what we in the United States really admire is success more than happiness. And we think that success will bring happiness. And quite often it's quite the opposite. Happiness brings success. And I think this is very, very true in, in corporate culture. And I think it's true in personal culture <laughs> in terms of our lives. So I think that's all true. I think additionally, happiness is a bit of an intangible, hard to measure, hard to know, you know, whether you have it or not. It's part of the reason I went to 
Bhutan in 2009 to study their gross national happiness index because it's like, how did the country come to the point of saying, I don't, we don't care about our gross national, you know, product or GNP or GDP, gross domestic product. We care about our GMH, our gross national happiness. And how are they measuring that? So that became very interesting to me is how do you measure it? But I think it, in some that the most important th thing for people to know is that that happiness and success are not the same thing. And success can bring happiness, no doubt about it. And yet, often for people, success that is driven to create happiness, you know, whether it's winning the lottery or going on the TED stage, once you get that thing, there better be some meaning and purpose to it beyond that. Otherwise, you're going to go looking for the next thing to give you the dopamine hit. Um, and that's really what's going on with a lot of people when they're trying to actually feed their happiness need. Is there, It's almost like a chemical reaction. So I think, I mean, happiness is a, an important topic. And compared to where I was 15 years ago studying it and then giving a TED Talk on it, you know, 13 years ago, 14 years ago, I think people are more focused on it today. And I think that that's a good thing. And at the same time, I think we almost have to have sometimes things like the pandemic, which rock people to their core, or as I happened to me in my late 40s, having a flatline experience. Sometimes there's got to be a wake-up call, you know, something a hotelier would say. And the wake-up call is the thing that, that rocks you to your core and forces you to ask the deeper questions of, am I happy with this? And that's when, that's when sometimes change happens. And this is a beautiful segue for MEA because that is exactly why people come to the Modern Elder Academy is they come often in the midst of a transition, often in midlife, uh, average age of people who come is about 54, but we have people as young as 28 and as old as 88, and almost 4,000 alumni from 44 countries. So it's a, it's a sort of a worldwide movement. But what they're often coming for is they need what Mary Catherine Bateson, a uh, Harvard academic, called a midlife atrium, a space to just reimagine and repurpose themselves based upon having stopped the momentum of their normal life and having started to edit what isn't working. Now, how do you consciously curate your life at that point? And that's really what we help people to do. And it's, and it's incredibly gratifying work. And of course, it's psychology-based. And we work very closely with Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and, and UC Berkeley professors on the curriculum. And our first campus is in, in Baja on a beach. And our second campus opens in March on a 2,600-acre regenerative horse ranch uh, just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. For those who've just tuned in, I'm Melissa Biggs-Bradley, and you're listening to Passport to Everywhere. Today, I'm speaking with the founder of the world's first midlife wisdom school, Chip Conley, about his creation of Modern Elder Academy. Stay tuned as we discover what it means to be a modern elder and how to rewire our mindset to make the years ahead some of the best ones yet. Share the show. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Streaming now on all podcast platforms. The journey continues. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Today on Passport to Everywhere, I'm unlocking the secrets of living a fulfilling life with the founder of the world's first midlife wisdom school, Chip Conley. 
Join us as we discover the practices of Modern Elder Academy. And stay tuned at the end of the episode to learn more about how you can join us next November at the Modern Elder Academy for a week of transformation. Chip, what sparked the idea in you to actually turn this into an academy and a campus, mm. The you know, the first one and now the second one. And I know you've got plans. Yeah, more yeah. more beyond that. Yeah. Um, I was writing the book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, at my second home, which is uh, in Baja. It's an hour north of Cabo San Lucas on the Pacific Ocean. And I w- went for a run on the beach one day and I had a Baja aha. <laughs> I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was, why is it that we don't have schools or tools or rites of passage or rituals for people to reimagine themselves. And we give so many resources to people in adolescence, in teen years, but there's a word that most people don't know. It's called middlescence. And it's the adult corollary to adolescence. Adolescence is when you're going through hormonal, emotional, physical, and identity transitions. And guess what? In your 40s, 50s, and 60s, you're going through hormonal, emotional, physical, and identity transitions. But we really don't have anything like the social support and tools and and schools to help people through that era. So MEA is the world's first midlife wisdom school. And I love it because I love, I lost five friends. I lost five male friends to suicide during the great recession, right around the time I had my flatline experience and and just realized I don't want to be doing this anymore. And I got to say that at least three of those five friends, I think if they had gone to MEA and had that something like that available to them, they would never have taken their lives. The other two, I don't know, because I think there are other things going on. But to know that there's a lot of desperation in midlife, there's a, certainly a bad brand attached to midlife, midlife crisis. Women feel invisible, men feel irrelevant. Um, I, I really wanted to help people to see like, okay, there's an upside to aging. And that's, that's why I wrote my new book, which comes out in January called Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. Because Yale's Becca-Levy has shown that when people shift their mindset on aging from a negative to a positive, they gain seven and a half years of additional life. So helping people to understand how to feel better about getting older, you know, yes, there's a bunch of things that get worse. And we have a lot of ageism in our society that will remind us of what those things are. But we can use some help to understand what are the 12 reasons what gets better with age. And that's, you know, that's why I wrote the book. And that and the book is really just a manifesto for what we do at MEA. I want to get into the particulars of MEA, but I'm also intrigued because I think you're absolutely right. This has been sort of an ignored rite of passage for many years. I mean, other than sort of the, the gold watch and retiring and being put out to pasture, there's all these old negative expressions for, you know, getting to a point. But in the last couple of years, there have been other people who've recognized this as an opportunity and books like the second mountain or from strength to strength. And, you know, I I think there's definitely a movement around the second half of our life can be better than the first. And it certainly is not the end of something. And we need to reevaluate how we think about these things. Why do you think, you know, aside from the fact that we're all living longer and there's a big shift, I'm curious if you think there are other reasons that we've now gotten to a point where we are starting to recognize that there can be a different attitude and tact to take? Well, there's a few things. First of all, there's, I want to give one shout out 
for a research study that's been going on for about 10 years. And the results are very conclusive across the world. And it's called the U-curve of happiness. And it shows that, frankly, from about 22 to about 45 to 50, our life satisfaction is declining. And it bottoms out around 45 to 50. And then with each passing decade after that, we get happier and happier. So this is the personal narrative of people's lives. And yet the societal narrative is that aging sucks. And you know, if, if you can make it through your midlife crisis, you, all you have to look forward to is disease, decrepitude, and death. So I wanted to really try to highlight some of this. Why is this topic becoming more salient in the population? Number one is we're living longer. So there's not only are we living longer, and actually in the US, we're not. I mean, that's a whole different story. The US is, is totally screwed up in terms of longevity right now, unlike anywhere else in the world. Everything, everybody else in the world is showing great growth. But, you know, we have people die younger in the U.S. compared to Cuba, Croatia, Uruguay. I mean, like, really? That's a, that's a whole other story. But the long-term trend for longevity has been very evident, and, it, and people are living longer. And people want to stay active longer, active in their career, active in their body, active in a variety of ways. You know, 50 years ago, you might retire at 62, and then you'd like, you say, okay, I'm just going to go and shoot pool, or I'm going to go crochet, or I'm going to do bingo. And the average age of a person who went into a nursing home 50 years ago was 65. Today, it's 85. So we've got this era of life that doesn't really have a name for it, from 50s to 75. Let's say for sure it's from 50 to 75. That's about it. It goes beyond that for sure, but, it, but 50 to 75 is sort of the core of it. Well, we haven't done a very good job as a society helping people to understand what's available to them during that era. And so, you know, the good news is that academics are sort of leading the way on this, but I think now companies are starting to see it too. I think, you know, it's certainly my story at Airbnb helps because it was like, hey, a boomer and a millennial came together and, you know, they're both better off for it. And I, and more and more venture capitalists now are sort of saying, hey, what's our model for getting a modern elder in there with that young, young guy who, you know, needs, needs some help. But I, th I think that what we're also seeing is that in a workforce in the U.S. where unemployment rate consistently is under 4% and we have fewer babies being made and people are living longer, boy, do we need to get smart about the fact that one of the fastest growing segments of finding great employees is people who are going to be 50 and older. And we've got to encourage them to stay in the workplace longer. And that's good for Social Security, too. I mean, so from a societal perspective... So long story short, there's so many different reasons. And um, I, I love it. I love that, you know, there's a, Eric Erickson's a famous developmental psychologist. And he said that in the first half of our life, you know, we are sort of focused on, I am what I own. I am what I do. I am what you say about me. I am what I control. And after age 50, it's, I am what survives me. And I deeply believe that the work that I I'm doing with my colleagues and um, and with the academics, et cetera, it, it feels legacy oriented and not be a legacy for the sake of my ego, but more a legacy for the sake of my friends who who died, you know, uh, a, a legacy to one of my best friends who took his own life is named Chip. I mean, like how many, how many friends do I have named Chip? Not many. I had two. <laughs> and one of the two took his own life around the same time that I was struggling myself. So his two sons have become very close with me and uh, and they were both toddlers when that happened. So I feel a deep sense of commitment to it.
Yeah. And and I'd love to know, you referenced the people that you're doing this with. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. your co-founders and what you all bring, what your mission in a way is? Yeah. And, and then, of course, I'd love to know how things have turned out differently than what you expected. What have been some of the surprises in the last couple of years as this has evolved? Yeah. Well, yeah, so my two co-founders are uh, Christine Sperber, who was a professional snowboarder, um, and she lived in Baja, and she knew Baja a lot better than I did. She had opened two hotels uh, as the opening GM, so she understood hospitality well, as did I, but she understood hospitality in Mexico, which I didn't understand. She was like the best experienced designer I've ever met. Uh, she threw my 55th birthday party eight years ago down in Baja. Uh, two years before MEA opened and like, wow, did she show me that she knew how to throw a week-long party for 120 people. So she's one of the my co-founders. The other one's Jeff Humui, who is actually a student in our very first beta cohort. He and his family, his wife and two kids were going on a year-long sabbatical to, to Baja so he could surf and figure out what he wanted to do next and happened to be in our first cohort. And he's the best facilitator I've ever met in my life. And um so he immediately got what we were doing, and I said, hey, come along for the ride. So the three of us are very different. Um, they're both 10 years younger than me, Gen Xers. I'm a boomer. They're both more hipster types um, than I am. Although, you know, God, I'm, I, I'm founding board member of, of Burning Man, so of course I'm a hipster. But I'm not I'm, – I'm a complex person. <laughs> so I – they, I think in many ways, they push me sometimes on, on the hipster side and on the ecological side. So we, we are very focused on regener creating regenerative communities. And long story short is it's a great partnership with the three of us. And then we brought together a team of people to help support the efforts and, and a bunch of great guest faculty members from everybody from Christian Mystic, Richard Rohr to Michael Franti, the musician, to Esther Perel, um, the psychotherapist, who all have taught at our campus and, and continue to teach with us. So um, I have three key things that we're teaching are how to navigate midlife transitions, how to cultivate purpose, and how to own your own wisdom. And I would say to your question about what is the biggest surprise, well, first of all, COVID was a surprise. <laughs> that was not easy, getting through COVID with a, a campus in, in Baja oriented toward an older population. But I would say the the word elder and just elder and aging are, are two troublesome words. And nobody has come up with a better term than modern elder, but modern elder is not going to be a term that's going to go global. And so we, we call ourselves MEA more than modern elder academy because some people immediately hear modern elder academy and say elderly. Oh, it's people who are 85 years old. And of course it's not. But age is a very strange thing. But I'm a big believer in the fact that, you know, we have old growth redwoods and we have old growth humans. And aging and growth can be synonymous. You know, it's not like, oh, okay, you see Johnny at age 15 and you say to him, oh my God, Johnny, look how much you've grown since I last saw you. You don't say the same thing to a 55-year-old, but there's a lot of, and especially for their waistline, but for the 55-year-old, there's a lot of growth going on there. It's just internal. It's emotional. Yeah. It's spiritual. It's relational. And there's a point in life where we move from being defined by our body to being defined by who we are and yeah. beyond our body. And that's uh, that that is often around midlife where that shift is happening. And it's a hard shift, uh, especially for women, because in many cases, women have been defined by their body or by their looks. Yeah, we actually just launched our first 
spa devoted to women as they age and all of the new things that occur to them, both from a physical, hormonal, financial, relational, um, there's, there's a certain set in their life where things change and there's not enough education and there's not enough conversation around those changes in women's lives. And, and we, uh, the New York Times called it, you know, menopause travel. We call our retreat the wise women retreat. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'd love to hear, you know, you talk a little bit about our curriculum. Give us a snapshot of a week at MEA and mm-hmm. what people can expect and how you mentioned all these great different people that come in. How do you choose when to go and what does a cohort mean? Yeah. So, so let's get to the logistics. So an average cohort size is somewhere between 20 and 28 people or 16 and 28 people uh, in Baja or in Santa Fe. It's very diverse collection of people. It's about 63% women. So it's more women than men. Average age 54, 25% people of color, lots of people from other countries. And, and, and wide diversity in terms of wealth. So we have CEOs and investment bankers and doctors, but you also have physical therapists and elementary school teachers. So it's a really interesting mix. We, we, that's one of the key things we look for. Well, and you have a scholarship program too. We're really very active in terms of recruiting people who would not normally come to a program like this. Uh, as I said before, it, it's about transitions, purpose, and wisdom. That's really sort of what is woven in. And the curriculum has a lot of really provocative questions. So I'd say we have like maybe a top 20 questions that will be woven into the week. Let me give you one as an example. What is it that you know or have done now that you wish you'd known or done 10 years ago? Lock that in your mind once you have that in your mind. Think about this. 10 years from now, what will you regret if you don't learn it or do it now? Now, that is one of maybe 20 questions that's sort of woven into the week with the intent of helping people, in this case, to learn how to become a beginner again. Because actually, curiosity and openness to new experiences are two of the most important variables to living a long, healthy, happy life. So what we've tried to do is use content, data, stories, and then ultimately questions that we really curate so that we create life-changing conversations between people, such that over the course of a five-night program, and we've had seven-night programs too, but we're moving more and more to just five-night programs, um, you can feel like, wow, that was better than two years of therapy. And Afterwards, you have this cohort of people who you're going to stay in touch with. We have an alumni program and our alums are very active. We have 26 regional chapters around the world. And so it is more than just a, you know one and done. I go to a workshop and then I learn something. And then two weeks later, I'm wondering like, what was that? <laughs> so that's, that's the key. And I, I would just say there's mindfulness thrown in there. There's in Baja learning how to surf. If someone wants to learn how to surf, we've got that. It's very well crafted in terms of not just being a classroom thing, but being experiential learning, using nature as a teacher. People are sort of surprised because a lot of the ways we teach people sort of come at it from the back door. It's like, uh, it's not a PowerPoint presentation. It's not, it's not going to be just a mental thing. It's more of a somatic experience. So it's very, very proud of, you know, our customer satisfaction scores. That's amazing. I can't wait to do it. But I also want to quickly talk about your book because you mentioned you have a new book coming out in January, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. 
And obviously, I don't want to ask you to give away all 12 reasons, but I'm really curious if you might share one of your personal discoveries of how life has gotten better with age for you. I'll just share briefly two or three. Um, one is I've learned how to dance with my emotions. You know, it, like our emotions when we're young are like villainous. Oh my God, that anger just overtook me. So we get better at emotional intelligence as we age. We become less emotionally reactive. So that chapter of the book, and that's one of the 12 reasons of why life gets better with age, just really speaks to like both the the data and social science, uh, how we are better at emotions, and then what are some habits or some practices. Another one could be, I understand my life story better. And um, understanding the through line of your life. When you're about, a, you know, when you're 25 years old, you're maybe yeah, a quarter of the way through the reading a novel and a quarter of the way, you know, going through the novel, you don't know exactly what's happening yet, but halfway through the novel, you know, and halfway through your life, you know, and you can see the patterns. So the ability to actually piece together a, a set of themes and through line for your life that actually helps you to understand what gives you a sense of meaning and purpose is definitely another thing that gets better with age. I'll give you one last one. And, and la last one is, when we're young, we're very compartmentalized. How we act at work, how we act with friends, our college friends, we act differently than our new friends, you know, that we've met, you know, in the last five years. And and we tend to, you know, have this compartmentalization going on. And, you know, as we get older, we learn not just grow old, but we, we grow whole. And we learn how to, to, in essence, integrate all of those qualities of who we are, all of our roles, all of our archetypes into a, a very present person who is the sum total of every age they've ever been. Again, I'm speaking here, there are a lot of people who don't fit this profile. <laughs> I'm speaking about ideals here, no doubt about it, but that's why the social science is really important because this is not just like, oh, one out of a hundred people fit this profile. No, there's a lot of data that shows what I'm talking about actually has some evidence behind it. You know, and frankly, you meet somebody who's 75 years old and they're like, wow, that person is present and they, they're not sort of fractured. They have integrity because they've integrated everything. So those are three quick examples of the 12 reasons in the book. That's fantastic. So you've talked a lot about pursuing happiness, practicing happiness. I love some of the, the way you think about our ability to use our emotions to create outcomes. Will you hmm. explain a little bit that sort of philosophy? You know, I, I'm, I wrote a book called Emotional Equations, which became a New York Times bestseller. And I use the acronym of CEO, Chief Emotions Officer. And that's, I think, what we are in our lives. Learning how to become emotionally fluent in our lives so you understand the language of your emotions. You understand when you're angry, what's behind that. And in that case, in that book, I, I really pieced together emotions like in equations so you could understand like, oh, you know, like what's behind jealousy and what's behind disappointment and what's behind joy. So I guess I would just say, I'm not sure this is what you're looking for, but I would say that being fluent about your emotions allows you to take and create a space between stimulus and response and allows you to be more conscious in terms of how, not just how you're showing up and what emotions showing up in you, but more conscious in just the person you want to be. We ask people in, you know, in their teen years, 
you know, consistently ask the question, what, who do you want to be when you grow up? And what are the qualities? What are the character qualities you want to embody? Because these are the kinds of things that David Brooks talked about in terms of eulogy versus resume values. And as we get older, our resume is much less important, but our, our coming eulogy at some point will be very important. And so how do you show up in the world in such a way that you are a mirror for how other people want to be and vice versa? Yeah. Um, I cannot wait to, to experience MEA and to read the new book. Last question. I would love to hear from you, Chip, because we didn't really even get into travel, which obviously both of us are passionate about. Yeah. So at some point we've got to do that. I want to hear about your experience in Bhutan. But if you had to sum up sort of what you think the greatest gift or lesson of being able to travel is or has been for you, what would you say that is? I'd say, I mean, give two answers briefly. One is to lose yourself and then find yourself. You know, thank you, Pico Iyer, for that. Uh, Pico is actually teaching at MEA in Santa Fe next July. So yeah, you you lose yourself and then you find yourself. Um, and then I think the other piece of it is sort of the Mark Twain perspective of, you know, travel is... It doesn't travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Yeah, it doesn't allow you to be discriminatory. It doesn't allow you to make assumptions about other people. It really helps you to become empathetic and compassionate and understand the other, so to speak. And we need more of that in the world. We live in a very balkanized, very polarized world, and we tend to judge people from the outside and we don't see the inside. And I think what MEA is really all about is helping people, helping to get to know each other from the inside out. And I think travel allows for that. And part of the reason travel allows for that, and what, this is sort of similar to MEA, if you are in a liminal space, liminal means, means you're awkward and it's not familiar, you are more open to seeing things. When you're habitual, you know, you're driving on the same freeway every day from work, like you miss things. But when you're in a space of liminality, there's a heightened awareness and you see things more. And part of the reason we've created MEA in two very liminal places, Baja in Mexico and in Santa Fe, New Mexico, it's not a commuter school from like in Sonoma for, for San Francisco or Hudson Valley for New York, is because what we know is that when people are in that liminal space, in that traveler's mind kind of space, they are more, they're better first class noticers. They're able to notice things in themselves and others more. And I think that's what's beautiful about travel is, you know, we are more heightened in our state of awareness uh, of other people and ourselves. A hundred percent. Thank you so much, Chip. It's been yeah. a total pleasure. And as I said, I can't wait to go through the program. Yeah. I just love what you do. I love, you know, the fact that you take your love of travel and your love of the kind of travel that people do to just distract themselves, but the travel that gives people an opportunity to go a little deeper um, and to understand other cultures. You, you know, you, you're, you're so good at that. Well, thank you so much, Chip. Big thanks to Chip Conley for joining me today and sharing his vision for the Modern Elder Academy and how to find purpose and meaning as we age. I hope you'll consider joining me next November at MEA in Baja to join the movement, as Chip says, on our insider journey, finding your flow in midlife and beyond. We'll explore wellness, mindfulness, and transformation, all guided by the MEA team and founders. For more information, visit indigari.com backslash insider journeys. 
And to follow along with Chip as he guides others to a fulfilling path, visit his website, chipconley.com, and follow him on Instagram at chipconley. For more information on Modern Elder Academy, MEA, check out modernelderacademy.com or Instagram at modernelder. Join me next week with author Anna Klutz as we uncover the magic of Paris, see what it's really like to live as an American abroad, and discover the exciting paths that new beginnings can take us on. Plus, listen for our must-sees and do's around Paris. You will definitely want to add those to your itinerary. Thanks for joining us, and see you next week. Continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms and anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at, at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I N D A G A R E. Send us your questions about travel, passport at SiriusXM.com, or call us at 646 535 